Welcome to Booked. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Welcome to the fourth and final installment in our Wrong Kind of Reading series. Tonight, you'll be hearing from authors Pinkney Benedict and Seth Harwood. That's right. Uh, Kicking it off for this episode is going to be Pinkney Benedict. Uh, He is the author of Dogs of God, Town Smokes, The Wrecking Yard, and Miracle Boy and Other Stories. Uh, The story he's reading tonight uh, he's reading from the story called pig helmet and the wall of life and he will be followed up by seth harwood who is the author of jack wakes up and this is life and he's going to read from his novel young junius which he changed apparently last minute to fit in with all the other um uh highbrow stories that we were hearing uh across the evening there <laughs> yeah i think he actually says that he called an audible which i'm assuming is a football term that uh I'm not familiar with, but um, changing something at the last minute, I guess, right? That kind of a thing? I once made one of my former employers explain that to me in front of a group of people, even though I knew exactly what he was saying. <laughs> just to be that I just, kind just of a guy. Blank, I just blank looked. I was like, I'm sorry, I don't understand. What do you mean? <laughs> so, so anyway, there you go. Sorry. Every time I hear someone calling an audible, it reminds me of that uh, that conversation. That public shaming that you put some poor person through. Well, it's you know, here's the thing, and you know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are football fans, but you know what? There's a certain percentage of us that aren't. So when you make everything about life into a football term, sometimes someone has to push back a little bit and remind you that it's uh, it's not everybody that uh, that gets that. There it is. Livius Nedden's looking out for us in the minority of, of uh, not sports enthusiasts. That's right. Richard Thomas constantly wants us to go watch sporting events with him. I'll tell you what, though, even though we're not that interested in the sports, it's always fun hanging out with Richard. Oh, I know, but it's hilarious because he's like, well, there's a Bulls game. And we're like, well, all right, there's going to be chicken <laughs> wings and beer, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so without uh, getting too far off the topic, uh, we're just going to jump right into letting you listening to Pinkney Benedict and Seth Harwood. Here it is. Up next, we have a gentleman who shouldn't need an introduction uh, because for more than 20 years now he's been churning out some of the best American short stories and a novel as well called Dogs of God. Uh, But I'm going to introduce him because uh, there's no justice in this world and uh, you may not know the name Pinkney Benedict. You should. You can after tonight if you don't already know. But uh, Pinkney Benedict is a uh, semi-national treasure, and uh, he's got uh, he was a national treasure. Yeah, he had he had a floppy wig. Anyway, Pinkney Benedict uh, is the author of Town Smokes. The Wrecking Yard, the novel Dogs of God, and the collection Miracle Boy and Other Stories. And uh, he also edits a um, every other year anthology series with his wife, Laura Benedict, called Surreal South. And uh, several people here tonight have appeared in those books as well. They're top notch. I can't wait to hear what he's going to read tonight. Thank you, Benedict.
It's the fallenest thing. Yeah, yeah. So, wow. There, right? You can you can take it out if you if you're more comfortable. I, who would like Pinkney to take it out? civilized people trying like hell with fire and boiling oil and molten lead and such to keep him and his kind out and he'd have been one of the dreaded barbarians he'd have been the lead barbarian in fact climbing over your city walls by means of an improvised ladder with his snarling face painted a furious blue and something large and heavy and sharp-edged clutched in his massive fist and wearing a pig for a hat the head and hide of a boar, thick and knobby and naturally tough, hardened further by curing in the cunning attachment of metal plates and studs and rings, with a great toothy maw of the feral hog sloping down over his heavy brow, its tusks like upthrust sabers, and its dead piggy eyes glinting dully above his own. Pig Helmet. Pig Helmet is a cop. He's employed by the county sheriff's department, and he lives down at the end of my road with his diminutive, pretty wife. Before that, he was a contractor in Iraq and Afghanistan, where the money was good and the action was better, but his wife worried too much with him away. We tried to look after her as much as possible, my own wife and I, but we were no substitute for the ministrations of Pig Helmet, as you can imagine. He's a dutiful and attentive husband. Before that work, he was a bail bondsman, a bounty hunter. He hates that term. Silly movie bullshit, he calls it. And one time, a guy uh, that had jumped bail threw acid in his face, trying to blind him to avoid capture. The acid missed his eyes, but crisped him pretty, crisped him pretty good otherwise, and the left side of his head is kind of a nightmare. The teeth show through permanently on that side, and the flesh is rippled and brown like old melt melted candle wax. He keeps pretty much to himself, does Pig Helmet, has some acreage and a few animals like we all do around here, following his hobbies and his off hours, hand-loading cartridges and felling trees on his place, and then turning the stumps into sawdust with the stump grinder. He loves the stump grinder. When I cut down a tree, he'll bring the stump grinder over to my place and grind the stump into the ground, leaving nothing but a hole and a few roots and a mound of soft, warm sawdust. He'll grind stumps for hours with apparent satisfaction. Sometimes in the fall, he'll bring over the loin from a deer he shot, and that's good eating. His wife's vegetable garden always produces plenty of tomatoes for them and for us. Pig Helmet is a fellow not much given to self-pity, as you can imagine, or even much at all in the way of self-regard. But he had recently been through a bad experience, and he was feeling down and lost and deeply in need of an encounter with life that would... <clears throat> Sorry. 
Sorry, I have to rearrange things. With an encounter with life that would restore him to a proper sense of himself, which is to say, no particular sense of himself at all, except for a kind of exuberant well-being uh, of the sort that would allow him, as of old, to grind a stump or love his wife or swing a truncheon with a deep-seated sense of pleasure. The bad experience that he underwent can briefly be described as follows. Oxycontin addict, alcohol, family monopoly game gone bad, shotgun deployed, multiple homicide, topped off with suicide by cop. When Pig Helmet arrived in his cruiser at this lonely place to which he'd been called, way out in the wilds of the western end of the county, the Oxycontin addict was sitting shirtless and blood spattered on the porch of the little frame house where he had just killed his brother, a cousin, his grandmother, can you imagine, and an uncle. The house wasn't an unpleasant-looking place, a neatly tended bungalow with a pretty trumpet vine running around the porch railing. The door stood wide open behind the Oxycontin attic, the screen door, too, the room behind it black as pitch, and he still had the scatter gun in one hand and wouldn't turn it loose, no matter how loudly Pig Helmet yelled for him to do so. Most people, people even marginally in their right minds, do what Pig Helmet tells them to do when he raises his voice at them. This guy just smoked his cigarette down to the filter and then kind of lazily, this is how a pig helmet described it to me, stood up and swung the muzzle of the gun around, gun around the cover pig helmet. So pig helmet took him down, double tapped him right in the center of his chest with a 45 caliber service pistol he carries and the guy sat down again, hands still wrapped around the stock of the shotgun and he died right there on the porch. Pig Helmet wouldn't have felt bad about shooting the guy, he said, if there had been some utility in it. But the people beyond that open door were already dead, as it turned out, and so there was nobody to rescue. There weren't even any shells in the shotgun anymore. The Oxycontin addict had used them all up on his Monopoly opponents and the grandmother, who hadn't even, to all appearances, been involved in the game at all. Fucking mess, Pig Helmet said, and I believe him. So when he saw the sign for the Wall of Life down at the county fairgrounds, he was in the mood. He didn't anticipate any trouble on account of the shooting because the homicides in the bungalow had been so brutal and everybody agreed that the Oxycontin addict had needed killing. It was a good shoot. Being on administrative leave pending a formal inquiry, Pig Helmet had the leisure to do what he wanted and he didn't feel much like hand-loading any ammunition, and he didn't feel like grinding stumps, and he knew that his wife's sympathy and worry, while affectionately meant, she's an affectionate woman with pig helmet at least, though cripplingly shy around others, even those of us who have known her for years, would just make him feel worse. So he took himself off to see what the wall of life was all about. Pig helmet on duty, wearing his Nomex gloves and his bulky body armor and his brown sheriff's office uniform with its broad Sam Brown belt across his barrel body and his thick utility belt, flex cuffs, pepper spray, billy club, taser on the left side, service pistol on the right, plus radio and tactical flashlight and knife and other assorted gadgetry can be a pretty unsettling sight. He's a big fellow, as I say, a man mountain, well over six feet tall, 250 pounds if he's an ounce. With a head shaped bald and gleaming and broad as the dome of the rock in Jerusalem. And he's got that nasty confusion of his face on the left side, which a person can grow used to and even fond of, but not in a short period of time. 
Now, you know what the wall of life is, even if you don't think you do. It's just like the wall of death, the county fair attraction where a rider on an old motorbike roars around the inside of a big wooden cylinder, centrifugal force sticking him perpendicular to the sides. The crowd stands on a catwalk at the top of the cylinder looking in, while the guy on the sputtering motorbike apparently defies gravity below them. At the bigger, better shows, there are a couple, maybe even three motorcycles on, motorbikes on the wall at one time, crossing one another's paths, cutting down toward the bottom of the cylinder, and then shooting back up to the top again to cause the crowd to draw back in alarm, fearful that the biker will shoot out onto the catwalk and knock them over and kill them. Sometimes, a pretty girl will stand at the bottom of the cylinder in its center, gesturing toward the motorcyclists as they circle above her head, showing her faith in them, that they will not come unstuck from the walls and crash down on top of her. That's the wall of death. The wall of life is just like that. Only, it was an evangelical preacher and his family who did the riding, and it was the preacher's daughter who stood in the bottom. The wall of life was this preacher's ministry, like an old-time tent revival meeting, but on motorcycles. And he went from town to town, fairground to fairground, setting up the wall, running for a couple, three days until the crowds let down, preaching at the people that came to see him ride and shout. When his work in one place was done, he and his family would tear down the wall of life into a series of short arcs that stacked neatly one inside the next and stow them aboard the age Fruhoff tractor trailer his ministry moved in. There was a huge portrait of the wall on the side of the trailer, the great wooden cylinder and crude human figures speeding along on motorcycles inside with a giant Jesus stretching his hands out on either side like he wanted to catch the little riders if they flew out. After he packed up his stuff, the preacher and his family would shove off for the next place he felt called to. Pig Helmet wasn't a particularly religious man. Like most of the rest of us, he grew up in a Baptist household, and he had been saved at a certain point in his boyhood because it was expected of him, and he had given testimony at various times for much the same reason, but none of it, as he told me, touched his heart very much. As soon as he moved out of his parents' house, he stopped going to church, more through indifference than any animosity toward the institution. When he met and started courting the pretty girl who would become his wife, he took up going again because it was what she wanted. It was one of the few places where she came out of her shyness a little and felt at ease among people, and her beauty and kindness and gentleness toward him did touch his heart, and so he went. Pig Helmet has told me about a tribe of savage Germans whom he particularly admires that lived back in Roman times. These Germans, it seems were converted to Christianity sometime after the reign of the Emperor Constantine. This is the sort of thing Pig Helmet knows about, though to look at him, the truculent set of his jaw, the heavy fore, uh, forehead, the glittering left eye that peers out from within the folds of scar tissue, you would never expect it. He reads a lot of nonfiction books about obscure tidbits and peculiarities of history, and other books about the oddities scattered throughout the galaxy, singularities and quarks and quantum theory and gravitons and the like. He says these things just naturally catch his attention. In the book about Christianity, when these great big hairy Teutonic warriors were baptized, when the Roman priests led them down into the cold rushing water of the river that ran near their home village up in the Black Forest, they willingly pledged themselves to Christ and dug themselves under, all except their sword arms. 
Their right hands, palms horny and hard with callus from years of wielding their long blades, those they kept dry above the fast-flowing current. The rest of them might belong to gentle Jesus, but their strength and their killing skills, they still belonged to the God of battle. So, and I'll stop there. That one's uh, available in Noir at the bar, as well as in uh, Miracle Boy and other stories. All right, we have one more reader for you tonight, and then you can uh, get more drinks and such. Seth Harwood received an MFA in fiction from the Iowa Writers Workshop and went on to build a large readership for his first novel, Jack Wakes Up, by serializing it as a free audiobook online. He's the author of two additional novels, This Is Life and Young Junius, and a collection of short stories a long way from Disney. Seth lives in San Francisco, where he teaches at Stanford and City College of San Francisco. Audio versions of Seth's novels and stories are available on mm -hmm. iTunes, patiobooks.com, and sethharwood.com, where they have been downloaded over one million times, mostly because of their pornographic titles. <laughs> Seth is taller than I am, and the reason that I had this set up way too high to begin with, but we're going to see if uh, it'll stay up. One more reader, Seth Harwood. Hi. I'll try not to let this droop too much, or to put too many flaccid cocks into my thing. Um, shit, I've been sitting over there hearing all these amazing readers, and feeling like, oh my god, what am I going to read? I was all set to read for my new book, This Is Life, but now I'm going off script. I'm going audible, because I feel like there's this part in Young Junius that has just the right amount of cocks. <laughs> and balls just for a situation like this. So I've never done a reading before in public. I've never done any reading before that involves actually reading off of my iPhone. But I think that this could actually work out. Are you guys with me? Cox, yes. All in the name of a good cock story. Yeah, this is amazing. I used to read Pinckney's stuff when I was growing up as a young, fledgling author. It's amazing. Some of my listeners are here. Some uh, guy that I taught as an undergraduate at Iowa is here. Unbelievable. All right, hang on. Sorry, I apologize. This is what you get. Tom Brady would never audible it up like this. <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> That's totally exactly what should have happened. Oh, we're almost there. This is why you never go off script.
Cox. <laughs> oh, we're almost there. Are you coming in? What? Are you coming in? I know, I like that accent. Young Junius it takes place in Cambridge in um, 1987, and this is what it's all about. Okay, sorry about the. So, okay, good. We're here. Thanks to everyone for coming out. Enjoy AWP and the lovely weather in Chicago, and let's see how we do here. All right, it's Sheila. The voice said, "Sheila D." And Clarence knew it was her. No other woman had the sixth sense to know exactly when a man had drugs to shake her ass out for. Sheila always knew. Clarence looked down at his lap, considered if it was worth a blowjob to let her in on what he had. That didn't take long to decide. Sheila just didn't, Sheila didn't just give a good blowjob. The woman knew every bit how to give a goddamn masterpiece performance. Going landscape. <laughs> She'd leave a lipstick ring around the base so dark you'd remember her next time you took a shower, get to thinking about her again so you wanted more. Clarence looked at his pipe. C-dub, she said. You hear me out here? What you doing? Clarence checked the lighter. He knew she had the x-ray hearing to know if he lit it, but he didn't care. For all she knew, he could be lighting up a cool. He laughed. The woman just knew, like she had crack rock radar. Even when he had a good stash of coke, she knew to come around. It was like she could smell it from three floors away. Even Sheila couldn't keep him from his hit. He flicked the lighter. C-dub, she shouted. He brought the flame under the pad and sucked hard. Mmm, he hummed to her as he watched the tube fill with white smoke, hoping if she heard him, she'd shut the fuck up and just wait. Then he tasted the blast and sucked it down hard into his lungs. He pushed a breath in behind it to go deeper, and then he hit the pipe again to get more on top of that. Lung capacity, that's what it came down to. Ever since he started smoking weed at 13, he'd been increasing how much he could suck in. Now he held it, watching the world go cloudy and gray for a second, before it all came clear and turned to a new set of colors. That was the boom, the boom bang. He checked his forearm. Even the welt left by Officer Johnson's nightstick didn't hurt. He stood up. Nothing hurt anymore. Clarence! He let a little smoke seep out through his teeth as Sheila resumed kicking the door. He crossed the room and checked the peephole. Sheila stood holding up her middle finger like she knew exactly where he was and when he'd look. He unlocked the door and held it open just an inch, put his lips to the gap and blew out smoke into the hallway. He, empties it, he emptied his lungs in a steady stream at her face. Ooh, she said. I know you got that good stuff now. She leaned into the door, trying to open it. Mm-hmm, he said. 
Now let me in, baby. You know I make it worth your while. Clarence moved his foot and let the door swing open for Sheila to come inside. She took the pipe out of his hand and walked toward the bed like the place was hers. Yeah, baby. Come on and bring yourself in. Clarence glanced out into the hallway and shut the door. You know you want it, she said. She sat down. Sheila was dressed like always, with a shirt that revealed cleavage pushed up by a too small bra that offered it to the world on a tray. She'd already lost some of her game. The shirt she wore over a tank the shirt she wore over her tank top was worn, a flannel plaid worth more for worn more for warmth than look. Her jeans were last year's tight acid wash instead of the black leggings girls were wearing now. But Clarence didn't care. Shit, half his clothes were from the 70s, and he liked their style better than the overpriced jabots and Z Cavaricis that brothers wore now. Pants showed you were a man, he'd always thought. And so, true to form, he had on a dark pair of brown work pants like his father wore when he worked for the city. When he wanted to get wild for a club or something, he had a pair of black nylon parachute pants with a lot of zippers in the back of his closet. <coughs> Shit, even if the wash on Sheila's pants was wrong for the year's fashion, the tight-ass seams didn't hide a thing. She'd gained a few extra pounds, but what woman in her 30s hadn't? Her hair could use a new cut, but she had shed that jerry curl like the bad habit it was, and now sported a do that Clarence could actually put his fingers in. He shrugged, knowing Sheila wasn't much. Still, he'd had good times with her. It touched something inside of him to have her around. She sucked on the pipe and reached for the lighter to heat the Brillo again. Nah, she said. This here's done. She held out the pipe for Clarence to add more rock. Clarence set her up again with a bigger piece. He cooked it and brought the pipe up to his mouth. Sheila started to protest, but he put his fingers over her lips. When he dragged in the smoke now, he didn't take it into his lungs. Instead, he kept it in his mouth and leaned forward, brought his lips to hers and kissed her, pushing the smoke in. She moaned her approval and leaned back onto the bed, pulling at his shirt. He resisted, stood up and hit the pipe again for himself now, dragging deeply. He was hoping that if he stood in front of her long enough, she would go for his belt. By the time he had his hit, though, she was reaching for the pipe again, greedy for more. Clarence didn't care. His blood pumped hard in his veins, and everything was all right with his world. What he loved so much was to hit the rock and have Sheila hit his cock at the same time. He stood and waited, then flopped down onto the bed next to her when the feeling moved him. She smoked what she wanted and then leaned toward him, started running her hand across his chest. So where you been at? Sheila reached for his belt. Thin, warm rays of light shone through the blinds and onto the side of her face. He took the pipe as she went for his buckle and pulled on the belt's end to open some slack. Clarence licked his lips and brought the glass up, thinking about what would come next. A beautiful idea that got interrupted by a knock at the door. He sat up put his finger to his lips. Sheila hummed her agreement as she opened his belt and pulled at the button, already unzipping her, his fly with her other hand. C-dub, someone called from the hall. A deep voice that sounded like it might be Black Jesus or Roughneck. Rough he didn't care about, never had to deal with if he didn't want to. Black Jesus was a different story. Clarence sat up and listened. That was when Sheila started licking her lips 
and he saw them shine as she put her hand down his boxers and pulled him out. He was sprung from the crack. Nothing like it. Nothing like it. Then she kissed him, and when he felt her lips on his cock, he fell back onto the bed. C Dub, Clarence. He heard the calling from outside, but in his world all that existed was his dick and Sheila's mouth on it. He knew only lips, tongue. It gives me great pleasure to fly from San Francisco to Chicago and say dick and cock into a microphone like this for fine people. With good Midwestern values. He knew only lips, tongue, warmth. Then her hand was part of it too. That was what he liked. Fucking Clarence, he heard, and knew it was Milk's voice. Who could miss recognizing that little fucker? It had to be Milk and Rough outside then. Two brothers he definitely did not give a shit about. Fuck off, he yelled. Sheila stopped in surprise, but he grabbed the top of her head. A moment later, she started again. The next thing Clarence heard was a bang, a sound like someone was hitting the door with more than fists or feet. The fuck, he said. He opened his eyes to see the ceiling tiles above him like a chessboard. Then the sound came again, and this time it was more ragged, like wood breaking. And he looked up to see the door pop off the frame, lock and all, opening inward from the hall. Motherfucker, he sat up. Sheila stopped, and he felt cold air on his wet cock as soon as her mouth was gone. Roughneck came in behind the now broken out door, and Milk was right behind him. Sheila screamed at them to get out. <coughs> Yo. Ruff looked like he'd been about to say something else, but when he saw what he interrupted, he froze. Oh, shit, Milk said. What's wrong? You motherfuckers have never seen a man's dick before in your little lives? Clarence pushed Sheila's hand off his shaft and waved himself at them. See this shit? I'm gonna beat you with my dick. <laughs> Roughneck turned to Milk like he had no idea what they were getting into, and he was right. They had no fucking clue. Clarence stood up, Sheila right behind him. She said, y'all get the fuck out or I'll fuck you up my damn self. Clarence was hard and he liked the look of it. Liked it even better when he squeezed the base with his hand. Yeah, he said. You like that? Ruff stared with eyes wide, his eyebrows halfway up his forehead. Put that shit away, he said, holding his hand in front of him so he could meet Clarence's eyes without seeing his lower half. Clarence walked toward them. No, you hold up. He went back to the foot of the bed and picked up the cop gun, turned to them with his dick in one hand and the gun in the other. Now what? Tell C-Dub which one of these you want between your lips. Hold up! Milk raised his own gun, a small revolver. A small revolver. Sheila smiled at Clarence. She did not seem to be upset at all by the gun. She put both hands on her hips and started to say something, but then she put one finger across her upper lip. She was trying to keep from laughing. What? Clarence said. Forty-four charter arms bulldog, motherfucker, Milk said. Paid for. <laughs> Sheila smiled wider, and Clarence looked down. Best put, best put that shit away now, she said. Bitch! You'll listen to the lady, Ruff told him. I'm gonna shoot that thing off. Milk lowered his gun, still pointing it at Clarence. You afraid to fuck with a man got his dick out? Clarence asked. Ruff held up his hands and took a step back. No way I want to get some AIDS up in this shit. 
Milk stepped back as well, but kept his gun pointed. Clarence felt his pants start to drop and then fall to his lang Clarence felt his pants start to drop and then fall to his ankles. A cold breeze rushed across his bare legs. I think Cox wins. Uh, anybody have a different count? I think Cox, Cox, once, twice, a lot of times. All right. Thanks so much for coming out. Thanks to the Galway Arms and Op and Booked and all our readers, Anthony Neil Smith, Kyle Miner, Pinkney Benedict, John Wegley, Nikki Dolson, Seth Harwood, and Jay. Who? Nope. Right. <laughs> Wait, what? Oh, the, the South African thing, right? <laughs> <laughs> you got me. Thanks for coming out so much. And David James Keaton for bringing the dick. <laughs> All right, and that was Pinkney Benedict, followed immediately by Seth Harwood. Um, Man, Pinkney's story was uh, was a little on the strange side. Yeah, I'd say so. And I didn't really think about this until you just said it, but like I was trying to think of, I thought to myself, yeah, there's not a lot of stories where there's this giant intimidating cop doing messed up stuff. And then I was like, or is there Anthony Neal Smith? Oh, Hmm. I see. I see. But that's just, you know, a coincidence more than anything. Anyway, good story. Pinkney Benedict. And then uh, we had Seth Harwood. Seth Harwood, as you heard, interestingly enough, over a million downloads, which is, you know, what, just 40 or 50 shy of where we are. So you're almost there, Seth. <laughs> Try and All you got to do is work at it. You'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> so, holy crap, man. That guy's got some some content on his website. That's, yeah, it's pretty impressive. And um, I really like to uh, <laughs> it's kind of awkward a little bit when he uh, was trying to find the story. Uh, when we were watching him just kind of flip through, but he read that from his iPhone. So I have to give him credit, like, uh, in the, in the, in the amount of time, uh, that he, he needed to get to the story. He found it, I guess, relatively quickly, but he kept his composure about it. Like I would feel really, really awkward if I were up there and I couldn't find the thing that I was going to entertain a room full of like 50 drunk people with. Yeah, if Seth wasn't uh, all freaked out by it, then he is now listening to you put it that way. Because I was feeling <laughs> uncomfortable listening. <laughs> so. Right, but can you imagine? I mean, like, put yourself in that position. He he handled it well. You know, one of the things that, uh, that Rob and I talked about after the reading was um, you could just tell that guy records a lot because, and, and you don't get this because of the Rob's meticulous editing. You know, it always sounds like we're very coherent, but there was just like one or two parts where you messed up and he retook the whole sentence, like without even thinking about it. You know, other readers just kind of stumble through whatever it is and keep going. Cause they're, you could tell that guy spent hours and hours in front of a recording device. Yeah. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is, uh, Livius mentioned, I think it was, it was you that mentioned it that night. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't realize it, but I didn't think of it from that perspective. But when he was reading, I was thinking to myself, oh, that would be a really clean edit. <laughs> See? So this is like a goddamn disease. <laughs> thinking yep. about things that way. You do it for long enough. Well, you do it for long enough. I'm not I'm not burdened down by the editing portion of this podcast. So uh, but yeah, it's uh 
it's good stuff from both those guys. We got a little off topic there, but yeah, I mean, great way to, to wrap up a, a wonderful evening at the Galway Arms. Absolutely. So uh, bringing it all back together, we had Nikki Dolson with her story about Viagra, which I think is called Viagra Story. John Weagley and his resurrection at Hassan Pepper Field. We had David James Keaton with Tap, Tap, Tap. Anthony Neal Smith, Herman Dog Diggs. Kyle Miner reading an excerpt of The Truth and All It's Ugly. And then this episode you just listened to, which is Pinckney Benedict reading from the story Pig Helmet and the Wall of Life. And finally, Seth Harwood reading from Young Junius. You know, I didn't do it, but I actually do have about two minutes of a recording of a crazy drunk guy that was talking to myself and Sean Ferguson out in front of the place, too. Maybe we'll find an episode to sneak that into as well. Yeah, or we'll just make it a, we could just link it as a download that's not its own episode or anything. If people want to hear the crazy drunk piece person outside the Galway Arms. There you go. Well, if we give that guy his own episode, it's going to be like David James Keaton. Right, we're not, no. I mean, <laughs> We, I did hear some of that, and it was really weird uh, and, and maybe worth listening to. I don't know. All right. <laughs> um, you know, I'd love to tell you what's up next, but we are so ahead of the game, we don't even know what's coming up next. That's how much content we already have put together for you guys. But uh, some of the things you can look forward to, um, more readings, as we're going to have the shindig in Chi-Town. Um, let us know how you feel about the readings because there's potential we may be looking at doing another one in the near future. So uh, that might be coming up if there's enough listener demand or tolerance, however you want to look at it. Uh, more <laughs> books, more interviews, um, lots of good stuff coming up. I, I have the feeling we might be having kind of like a spectacular episode coming up in the near future too, like a four-person you know, yeah, Livius just always wants to have as many people on as possible, so it's a nightmare for me to edit. But um, do you uh, want to talk about some specific books we've got coming up? Yes, I do. Um, either just prior to listening to this episode or just after listening to this episode, um, you will have heard our review for Pablo de Stair's, um It's a collection of um, four existential noirs. It's four novellas uh, lumped together in one volume, and that volume is called They Say the Owl Was a Baker's Daughter. There's going to be some, uh, some key talking points already in that book that we're, uh, we're looking at covering. Yep, we also have uh, a couple other things on our on our plate. We might shift around the order of them, but uh, Stephen Graham Jones' Zombie Bake Off is definitely on our list of, of stuff to read and talk about. Uh, Christopher Moore's upcoming release, Sacre Bleu, we're going to be talking about that, which is released on April 3rd. And I don't know how excited Livius is, but I'm definitely excited. Chris Moore is actually going to be in Milwaukee as part of his book tour on April 11th, and I'm going to try and drag Livius up to that. So if you're anywhere near us and you want to go uh, maybe meet, briefly talk to Chris Moore, let us know, and maybe we can uh, convince Livius to carpool. I think I can be convinced to go meet uh, Chris Moore. Pretty sure. Pretty sure it won't take anywhere near as much arm twisting as some of the uh, some of the other things you've had me do. <laughs> and uh, Matt For Bell? the show and oh. off the show. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, other stuff, we got Matt Bell's Cataclysm Baby we're going to be talking about uh, in the upcoming weeks. And, um, yeah, that's all that I have on the list in front of me. But it feels like there's like nine books piled up that we just are trying to get on top of. Oh, oh, we are, because I already have a couple more that you didn't mention. Oh, great. Craig Wallwork. We're going to be reading oh. some Craig Wallwork. That's coming up very, very soon. Uh, oh, oh, and uh, uh, Phil Jordan, he has this book that's uh, 
uh, either just about to be released or recent release called Praise of Motherhood. That might be uh, something we're floating your way. Yeah, there's a ton of stuff circulating around right now, so a lot of exciting stuff coming from Booked for you. So um, that's us tooting our own horn, patting ourselves on the back. If you'd like to do the same, please leave your comments at the, at the bottom of this uh, episode or go to our Facebook page, click the like button, talk all the smack you want. That's right. And share us with your friends. As always, share, share. What was that? I have no idea. All right. Well, there it is. I'm going to say that for our, for our, our lovely Sean Ferguson. There it is. Until next time, I'm Livia Snedden. Now I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Keep reading.